0: Good morning. It's good to see y'all this morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Uh, put on Facebook yesterday, I believe this to probably be the most popular chapter in the book of Daniel, most uh, well-known narrative. Daniel chapter 6, we usually refer to it as Daniel and the lion's den. I like to think of it other titles that speak more about God and His glory than just Daniel and the lion's den because sometimes we can get caught up in those narratives and really think that the main character is Daniel, and of course the main character of no piece of Scripture is anyone other than God Himself, but we'll see that in the text this morning as you look in Daniel 6. We're going to see the entire chapter. Uh, We will work our way through the entire chapter this morning, but for time's sake we will not read the chapter in its entirety. I will summarize some of it. Uh, some of it I know may be familiar to some of you as well. But I do recommend if it's been a while, or maybe if, if your only recollection of Daniel 6 is uh, from Vacation Bible School, uh, I, I strongly urge you sometime this afternoon to sit down and just take five minutes and uh, read. And some of you saying, brother, it doesn't take five minutes to read 28 verses, <laughs> however long it takes you. Read through Daniel chapter 6, every verse in its entirety, uh, and reflect on this morning's message. But let's begin this morning in verse 1. See the setting, Daniel 6, 1. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him." So here's our setting. If you've been with us, if you were with us last week for Daniel 5, uh, you know that the the Babylonian kingdom as an independent nation came to an end. In Daniel 5, we saw Belshazzar, who was the last king ruling in Babylon, that uh, that there was the handwriting on the wall, and uh, he was judged, and the kingdom was judged, and Belshazzar died that night, and now Babylon is part of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, and so it's not an independent state. There's a new king, Darius is ruling at this point, and so Darius was known for setting satraps, or satrapies, as some people would say, over the kingdom. And so what he does is he takes 120 people and spreads them out throughout the kingdom so that they could be in charge and give account and make sure that things were done orderly. And so you have 120 people spread throughout the entire kingdom, and then above them there are three more that those 120 have to answer to, and of course those three answer to the king. If you want an analogy that might help you wrap your mind around a little more, make it a little more concrete, if you could imagine a state having 120 mayors over different towns and then a governor, or in this case three governors, that would then answer to the president, that's kind of the picture that we see here. So 120 over small parts, these are satraps. The three that would be sort of like the governors, one of them is Daniel. We see that here in this text. So this is Daniel. Uh, in the Babylonian kingdom, one was his independent nation, he was distinguished. He was set apart. He was chosen for, uh, for high official status and jobs. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar recognized the specialty of Daniel. Belshazzar recognized the specialty of Daniel. And now even under Persian rule, Darius recognizes that this Daniel is someone that is very special, and so he has a high place. And then we see that not only does he have a high place, right? He's one of the only three high officials over the whole kingdom. And then the king realizes, we see in verse 3, that Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. So out of these 123 men that are ruling the kingdom, the king realizes that there's something special about Daniel that this guy is better than the rest, and so he his plan is, you know what, I'm just going to do away with some of this system, and I'm just going to let Daniel be over the entire deal, and he'll answer to no one but me. And, of course, the others, they don't like that. Right? They're about to be out of a job or at least knock down a peg on the totem pole, and so, so they say, all right, in modern-day terms, well, they, they're going to run a smear campaign. Let's go find the skeletons in Daniel's closet and display those to everyone. Let's go find something where we can blackmail him. And so they come up with this plan, but then there's a problem. There aren't any skeletons in Daniel's closet. There's no bad news about this guy. There's nothing that they can tell. Uh, It says that, that because of the excellent spirit that was in him that they, as they sought to find a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So Daniel, this is, this is the point whenever I'm reading this, that, that I, in, in the way that we read narratives, I want to really be impressed with Daniel as the lead character in this story, right? I mean, Daniel, whenever he first gets there and he's a young man, Right, he's 12, 13 years old, and he goes through the schooling, and he's smarter than anyone else in all the kingdom. All right, that's, that's a bright young man. He's got a good future ahead of him. And then they need somebody to interpret these dreams, and Daniel's the only one that can do it. Something special about this guy. Then he, he's an old man. Well, maybe he's kind of fallen off a little bit, but Belshazzar needs somebody to interpret the handwriting on the wall, and there's only one man in the whole kingdom that can do it. Daniel, and now there's a new kingdom and a new ruler and a new king, and Daniel's even older, and he's distinguished above everyone else, and so we start, and me at least, I start to think, man, Daniel really lived an impressive life, but I want to point you just briefly to verse 3, when we see why it is that Daniel was so distinguished and so special, it says, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And if you go back and look at the wording, especially in chapter 5, we see it's the spirit of Almighty God, right? The spirit of the holy God that's inside of him. The spirit of God is the thing that sets Daniel apart. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in the application part of this. But point one, Daniel is set apart because of God I want us to recognize that even here from the beginning at the beginning of this chapter when Daniel is really held up and and shown as the special guy who's above everybody else even that is shown to be because of God God is the reason God's spirit in him is the reason that he is distinguished among everyone else and that he is blameless and that he does all the things and that he is as faithful as he is But as we continue in the the text, verses 5 through 9, so the men, right, they have to come up with a different plan. This is their plan to find out some bad things about Daniel and expose those things, and there are no bad things. So now they need a new plan. And Daniel was known, had a reputation of being faithful and a faithful prayer and one that would pray to Yahweh and who was always faithful to Yahweh no matter what. So they come up with this plan. They say, we'll get King Darius to sign a decree. And so they go to him and they say, King, all the satraps and all the high officials have decided that you should sign a law saying that for 30 days that nobody can pray to anyone except for you. They can't make petitions to any other god right at this time. There were gods just running out of the people's ears, false gods and pagan gods. They said, for 30 days, nobody prays to anybody except for you, king. Of course, king. Must have liked the sound of that. It's a good idea. He signs the law, and, and it's made painstakingly clear that in according to the Medes and Persians, that there are specific types of laws that no one can revoke, not even the king himself. And so this is the type of law that he signs. So he, he signs this law saying nobody prays to anyone. And if they do, right, there's a stipulation, if they do, if they're caught praying to someone else, we'll throw them in the lion's den. So pretty high stakes here for praying to somebody other than the king. And in verse 10, we see Daniel's response to this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And it's it's amazing to me as I read that Right, the steadfastness of Daniel, it's not, it's not this, this great turmoil and worry and anxiety inside of him, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? Daniel hears there's a new law, a new law has been passed, it restricts religious freedom, and it says that you cannot pray, and it says if you do pray, there are great high stakes for deciding that you're going to pray. And so what does Daniel do against this government? Of course, he's a high official, right? He might could have tried to run some campaign against it. He could have geared up a protest against it. He could have thrown a fit. He could have ran to social media. I know not really run to social media. He could have spread some terrible things about the king because of this. But what did he do? He prayed. And some people think that this is showing there's a protest. They think that Daniel goes like to a balcony in front of everybody and says, King says you can't pray, watch me pray, and gets on this balcony. But that's not how verse 10 is worded. Now it says that there were windows in his upper chamber. So the upper chamber is not like the highest part of the room. It's, it's like an attic would be a good Uh, idea for you to have here. So he goes to the attic and in his attic there are windows that are already open toward Jerusalem. He doesn't do this as a show of protest uh, against the king. No, what he's doing is what he's always done. The windows are already open toward Jerusalem and three times a day he goes up there and he gets down on his knees and he prays and he gives thanks to God while facing toward Jerusalem. This is what he's been doing the whole time. And he just continues doing what he's been doing. If, if you have windows that are open and you're inside of those windows and those windows are higher than everyone else, it's not, it's not a public protest. It would be hard to see Daniel from the ground level. So this isn't some public protest. What verse 10 is making clear is what happened to Daniel, what he decided to do once this decree was been, had been passed, was nothing different than what he'd been doing before. He did the exact same thing, even though the stakes were now much higher for doing the same thing. Point two, Daniel's allegiance was unfailingly toward God. Without fail, Daniel's allegiance was toward God. He thought that he should pray three times a day while facing toward his homeland of Jerusalem, where the temple used to be, has been destroyed now. But, but he thought that that's what he should do before the decree was passed. After the decree was passed, he didn't change. The government officials, the decree, the lions, none of it changed anything about Daniel's steadfast allegiance to God. And so, of course, you can imagine what do the men do? This is what the men were hoping for, right? All the evil men, this is what they wanted. So they're spying and they catch Daniel in the act and they go and they tell the king they tell the king, king, listen, Daniel, he's praying, he's praying to somebody and it's not you. And, and the decree says that he can't do that. In verse 14, it makes very clear that this brings the king a lot of distress, a lot of anxiety. He does not want to throw Daniel into the lion's den. And now you could imagine there are, if nothing else, there are good financial reasons that the king doesn't want to throw Daniel into the lion's den. Right? Daniel has proven himself... This whole system is to keep people from being corrupt and stealing from the king, to make sure the king gets what he is. And Daniel has distinguished himself as the best leader in all this, so for nothing else, he's the best worker that the king has. He is the most faithful servant that the king has, so the king doesn't want to take his best worker and throw him in the lion's den. It appears, as I read this, that there's more to this, that the king has become fond of Daniel and cares for Daniel, but whatever the reason is, the king is distressed and he doesn't want to do this, but he can't, he has to save face. He has declared, if anyone prays to anyone in these 30 days other than me, I'll throw him in the lion's den. He can't go back on his word, so he throws him in the lion's den. And in verse 16, we really see this agony of the king having to throw this man that he cares about, this worker, in there. So, in verse 16, the last part of it, we see his last words that he says to Daniel as he's putting him in. He says, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And he puts him in. And so then the king goes and we see more of this stress and anxiety. It says he went and, and sleep failed him. He wasn't able to sleep. He was up all night. Uh, He didn't want any entertainment brought to him. He didn't want anything that would distract him. The king is stressed out and he is worried and he is thinking about Daniel all night long. And then it says, at the crack of dawn, first light, here goes the king. He's headed to the lion's den to see what has come of Daniel. So he runs to the lion's den. And we see, if you look with me in verse 20, it says, as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Probably waited. Maybe Daniel's quiet for a minute to kind of scare him. (laughs) Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And that, that, that part, that last verse, verse 23, is reminiscent to me of what we saw in chapter 3 with Shadrach and Meshach bed and Abednego, right? They stand up and they do what they feel God has called them to do. And Nebuchadnezzar gets mad and he throws them in the fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter than normal. And the king sees them walking around with the angel and he calls them to come out. And says, when they came out, that not a hair of their head was singed and they didn't even smell like smoke. And we see here, so, so Daniel's thrown in and he's there and the lion's den. And the lions that he's with are ferocious. These are not tame lions. These are ferocious, hungry lions. I know it doesn't appear that way because of the, the way that Daniel comes out without a scratch on him, but if you read on, we see that the king, he goes and, when he realizes how he's been tricked, he goes and gets all of the other leaders, all these, these evil men, and he throws them in. And it says that they throw them in, and before they even touch the ground, the, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones. So these are ferocious lions. These are hungry lions. And Daniel's been in there with them for the entire night... And just like men that had been in a fiery furnace, he did so much that the men throwing them in there were killed by the fire, coming out not smelling like smoke. It says that Daniel came out without even a scratch on him. And, and so what we see here, this is, this is in Babylonian Persian times. This would have been known as a trial by ordeal. right? Whenever somebody was accused of something and you didn't have evidence to prove that they were guilty, sometimes they would do this. This is also something that we see uh, in Jewish culture. In Numbers 5, we see uh, God giving in the law uh, where they should do a trial by ordeal in certain settings for the Hebrew people as well. But so they would take the person and they would subject them to an ordeal of some sort. And the, the thinking was if they come out alive, then they're innocent. And if they're killed, then they were guilty. And so sometimes they would do this. One that they used uh, for witchcraft is they would take the person that was accused of witchcraft and they would throw them in a river. And if they made it out of the river alive, they're innocent. And if they didn't, well, then they knew that they were guilty. And nobody was sad that they were killed in the river. And so here, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. And the thinking is God knows whether he's guilty or not. So if he is guilty, he will die, and if not, God will deliver him. And Daniel makes very clear that this is the, the idea here. We see in verse 22, the way that he speaks to the king, he says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So Daniel says, This is the reason that God has spared me, because I am innocent king. And so here we see that God is greater than this great ordeal that Daniel has to deal with. And point three, the last point of this text, the main point of this text, the lion of Judah proved himself stronger than the lions of Babylon. The Lion of Judah proved himself stronger than the Lions of Babylon. We see that the main point of this text and the main point of this book so far has been the power of Almighty God. How He is more powerful than anyone or anything. How He is in control of everything. We see here, and this is one reason that I love to go through a book in its entirety, we have seen this building over and over That God was in control of everything in Jerusalem and Judah, right? The promised land. Well, nobody questioned that God was in charge of what went on in the promised land. But we see that because the only reason that the Babylonians were able to overtake Jerusalem and Judah is because the Bible tells us that God allowed them, that God sent them to do that. So God was in charge of what took place there, but then they come to Babylon and they're in a new city and there's a new king and they're not in the promised land anymore. And so the question is is God still powerful? We see in chapter one, he's still just as powerful. He makes his people smarter and more capable than, than anyone else. And we see that he sends dreams and that that his men are the only one that can interpret them. And he is stronger than the fire. He did as hot as it can be heated. And, And now there's a new kingdom. It's no longer Babylon and it's not Nebuchadnezzar and it's not Belshazzar. Now it's the Persians, the Achaemenid Persian Empire, the strongest empire the world has ever seen. And the question could stand, is God stronger now the Persian Empire. Does he still have the power and influence that he does? And we see that his man, Daniel, is lifted up and is more distinguished than anyone else because of God's spirit, and then Daniel is taken and thrown in a lion's den in this ordeal, and God proves again that he is stronger than anyone. And we see King Darius at the end of this chapter, verses 26 and 27, giving this decree, praising the living God of Daniel... And we see once again that yes, the answer is absolutely yes. God is more powerful than anyone at any place at any time. That God is always in control. And brothers and sisters, we cannot forget this as a point of application. In our life, in our world, there will be times when this will not seem to be the way that things are. Right. Whenever you are in the midst of falling down into the lion's den, all of a sudden it may not look like God is the one that's in control of everything. But we can always be certain. Whenever we're removed from our immediate context and what's going on right now, and given a historical perspective, we can see there's never been a moment in time when God was not in control. never been an, an ordeal that came up that he was not powerful enough to defeat. And of course, the, 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 prevalent, the prevalent thought we see here is that God didn't even have to come himself to shut the mouths of these lions. He sent one angel, one angel, one angel to deliver the men from the fire, one angel to deliver Daniel from the lions. And you know how many angels God has? I don't either, but it's a lot. Legions of them. Legion is a large number. That he is, he is the, the Lord of hosts, which is the idea of heavenly armies of angels. One of them is enough to defeat the worst ordeal that Persia has. One of them is enough to defeat the worst ordeal that Babylon has. And he's got thousands and thousands that work under his command. Brothers and sisters, you will not deal with anyone in your life that's stronger than our God. So while we can trust what we read in Matthew ten twenty-eight. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So that's the main point. God is all-powerful. God is in control. But I do want to give you just briefly a couple of sub-points that I see in this text that I think are very applicable, some takeaways from this text that I think could change the way that you look at the life around you. So the first one is that, the reminder that that God's people are set apart by God's Spirit. Right, again, it's easy for us to read the book of Daniel and say, man, Daniel is a great dude. Daniel was smart and Daniel was capable and and Daniel was distinguished and Daniel was faithful, but, but it's made painstakingly clear as you read throughout the book of Daniel that it's not because Daniel was just born that way. Not because Daniel made himself into that sort of man. No, it's because God's Spirit has done this. God is the one that gives Daniel these abilities. Right, Verse 3 here said that he was distinguished above all the high officials and satraps because the reason is there was an excellent Spirit in him. And it was the Spirit of God. What has distinguished Daniel most so far, that he could interpret dreams and visions, right? Nebuchadnezzar's first dream and Nebuchadnezzar's second dream and the handwriting on the wall. How was it that he could do this? Chapter 117, it said, As for these four youths, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Where did that ability come from? It came from God. The text makes it clear. The distinguishing factor between Daniel and all the other wise men, Daniel and all the other people, was God. Brothers and sisters, what sets us apart from everyone around us? It's easy for us to look on social media and see the sort of things that people post and what they're going through, and what their life looks like. And it's easy for us to look at our neighbors, or to look at our friends, or to look at our family, and to look at the terrible financial decisions that they have made, and to look at the sinful decisions that they have made that have led to addictions, and that have led to their families falling apart, and that have led to them losing jobs. It's easy for us to look at those things and say, if they were just more like me, their life would be a lot better. If they just did what I did, because it's easy for us, just like it's easy for us to say, look at Daniel. It's easy for us to say, look at me. But brothers and sisters, I would urge you to remember that the only distinguishing factor between you and those people living in addiction and those people living in broken homes and those people living in poverty because of financial decisions that they have personally made, the only thing between you and them is Jesus Christ. He's the only reason that we're righteous. He's the only reason that we're wise. He's the only reason that we're here. We're not better than them because we're just better than them. We are more righteous and more perfect than them because we've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. So let us remember the only thing that sets us apart is the Spirit of God. But also remember that if you're one of God's children you will be set apart. It's two sides of the same coin. If you're set apart, it's only because of God. If you are in God, you will have His Spirit and the Bible promises that you have the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You will have these if God's Spirit lives in you. First John, we just went through that book. You will love God. You will love his word. You will follow his command. You will follow his example. You will love all of his children if you are a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you'll be set apart. If you're set apart and more holy and more righteous, don't get the big head. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's because of God. Subpoint: the second subpoint I see in this text is that we get a beautiful reminder that our access to God has been given to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this is one that's very applicable for our day and time because some of you feel like recently the government has really infringed or began to try and infringe on our right to worship. Many people deal with that, may deal with that more in the future. And here we see a beautiful... beautiful in that sense but as far as if you want an example of what this would look like here's a perfect picture of it you want to talk about the the government infringing on somebody's rights to worship religious freedoms here we see he was told you can't pray it wasn't you can't go to church it wasn't you can't gather you can't pray and i love the way that tremper longman the third and his commentary on daniel describes daniel's reaction to that when he just goes and prays just like he has before. He said, "Quote, there's no speech or inner turmoil recorded in the narrative. The impression the narrative intends to impart is Daniel's unflinching obedience. He does not question, doubt, or worry; he acts. He does not bow toward Darius, but toward Jerusalem. Darius is neither the object nor the mediator of his prayers." That role is taken by Yahweh. Our right to worship now, I'm thankful, let me be clear, that I'm thankful that we live in a nation where we have religious freedom, where we have the right to gather, a protected right to gather for corporate worship. I'm thankful that we have that. Thankful that those rights are protected. But let me be also clear about this, that even if one day those rights are taken away, If one day you find yourself living in a nation where you don't have those religious freedoms given to you by the government, we still have the right to come before God. They may tell us that you can't do it corporately, that you can't gather as a large body, as we're used to, but brothers and sisters, that doesn't take away your access to God. We see here, the the king says, you cannot pray, so what does Daniel do? He prays. It doesn't take away God's listening to him. God doesn't quit hearing him because Darius said that he shouldn't. No, God still heard the prayers of Daniel. Daniel still prayed and still had clear access to God. Hebrews 9.12 makes clear how this is. It says, He, speaking of Christ, He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means of the blood of goats and cows, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, Jesus Christ, when he died in our place, secured for us forever, for those of us that have faith in Jesus Christ, that we could come before God, that we can praise God, that we can worship God. No matter where we live, no matter what sort of persecutions, no matter what sort of ordeals, Are promised, if we do, nobody can take away your access to God. That is given and secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no judge, there is no president, there is no king, there is no parent that can take away a Christian's right to worship God, a Christian's access to God. The very last sub-point is that we will all one day endure a trial by ordeal Similar to what we see here. The ordeal for Daniel was being thrown in a lion's den. For most of us, the ordeal will be death. Right? If Christ doesn't return, then at some point we will all live out our time on earth and we will all die. And death is a scary thing and death is something that we are not very familiar with. None of us have been there yet. At least none of us in here have been there yet. But when we do, we will deal with something very similar to what we see here. When you die, God will then judge you. Here, they were, he was thrown into the lion's den, and when he was thrown into the lion's den, the prevalent thought was that God will judge whether he's innocent and deliver him, or God will judge that he is guilty and he will die. Daniel made clear, God sent his angel and shut the mouth of the lion because he has found me blameless in his sight and in your sight. King and brothers and sisters, we will die, and when we die, we will stand before God and we will be judged, either as blameless and innocent. And if that's your conviction, then you'll be free forever. To live in the glory of heaven with God in his presence forever, you will be delivered from the power of death. But if you die and go through this ordeal and you stand before God and you're not blameless and you're not righteous and you're not perfect, then God will pronounce you guilty. And the thing that you will worry about, the thing that you will deal with, will not be ferocious lions. You will beg that you would have only been given ferocious lions because it will be the wrath of God and hell and it will be forever and ever and ever. Brothers and sisters, you may ask this morning, how in the world can I, somebody that has sinned and has done things wrong, how could I ever be judged as righteous and blameless? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that has secured our ability to come before God. Jesus is the one that is more powerful than anything that we will ever face. Jesus is the one that can make us blameless. He left heaven and came to earth and lived a perfect life and died a perfect death rose from the dead, and now whenever we place our faith in Him, when we give our life to Him, when we choose to serve Him with everything we have and everything we are, we simply call that placing our faith in Christ. When you do that, your sins are taken away, and you're made righteous, and you're made blameless, and you don't have to worry with the guilt that you've lived with for all these years, and you're given the promise that when you stand before God... To be tried and judged, you will be found innocent and blameless. You'll be delivered into the beautiful eternal life that God has for his children. If you've never done that, if you've never come to that point, the first thing I would recommend to you is that you would cry out to God for his mercy and for his forgiveness. But if you have questions about that, why would I do that? What does that look like? How do I do that? I, I, I urge you to reach out to me. Let me show you in the Scriptures what that looks like, why that's important, how you do that, that the Lord could use those Scriptures to convict you of your need for Him. But if y'all would join me in, let's pray as we finish this morning. Father God, I am thankful, Lord, for the beauty of the book of Daniel that we have now seen over and over and over your strength and your ability and that you are greater and stronger than anyone. Father, that you can set people apart and make them things that they were not. Father, that you can save your people. Lord, the reminder that we will all face judgment one day, but there is a way that we can be made blameless and perfect, that we can be delivered just as Daniel was delivered, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered. Lord, that we can be delivered from the wrath of God, not because we lived a perfect life, but because Christ did. And we have given our lives over to Him, and He now represents us. Father, thank you for making that available to us. Thank you for loving us enough to send your son that he would die that excruciating death to make this available to us. Father, I pray that we never, Lord, that we never look around us and, and begin to think, because of our current circumstances, that, that there are people that can dictate our access to you. Lord, we know that that is secure. Lord, I pray that we never look around us and begin to think that, that the government... Or that powerful people or that armies or whatever it is, Lord, that those people are ultimately in control because, Father, we know that their authority only goes as far as you allow it to, that you're the one that has all authority, that you're the one that has all control, that you're the one that's in charge of all things. Father, let us remember this often. Let us sing your praises and declare your truth and share your good news, your gospel of how people can be saved with all those around us daily. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for coming. I pray you all have a wonderful week.